This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we, we need to hear from you. And so we pray that you would speak to us this morning by the power of your Spirit through your Word. In Jesus' name, amen. There was once a man who became a CPA. He went into his father's accounting firm and did very well. But he got bored with accounting, so he risked everything that he owned and bought a failing trucking company. He then used all his business skill and hard work to turn that company around into a great success. And then he got bored with that. So he sold it and bought a mail-order cosmetics company, which he also turned into a huge success. And he acquired or started a whole host of different businesses. He did extremely well. He collected antique cars, fine art, fine wine. He then had to build a bigger house to put it all in. He bought some fields so he could grow his own hay to feed his own horses. He built a barn to store the hay. Then he built a bigger barn to store the antique car collection. And then he retired to enjoy his wealth. But a short while later, just after his 60th birthday, he died. That man was my uncle. And I tell you that because the story that Jesus told in our gospel today reminded me of my uncle. When I heard of his death many years ago, my prayer was, Lord, have mercy. I am not his judge. I hope and pray that the faith he once professed as a younger man was real. I loved my uncle. I think about him a lot. I miss him. But the story of my uncle, or of the man in the parable that Jesus told, are, in a way, such sad, familiar stories. I guess we've all heard stories like that. You know, the bumper sticker, he who dies with the most toys wins, is but a sick joke. A bit like the one, you know, you never see a hearse towing a U-Haul. And, and yet, why is it, given that, why is it that so many people seem to treasure earthly things out of all proportion? I wonder how often is the reality of much of our day-to-day living but a chasing after things that don't ultimately matter, things that don't last. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How up-to-date Our Old Testament reading is this morning from Ecclesiastes. You know, some translations uh, replace vanity with the word meaningless. So the book begins in in those translations, meaningless, meaningless, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Everything under the sun, it says, is nothing more than a chasing after the wind. The rich fool in the story that Jesus told, and many like him still today, find to their dismay and great cost something of the truth of these profound words from Ecclesiastes.
There the man was in the parable Jesus told, after all his hard work, with his bumper crop safely stored away in the biggest barn ever, and he sits back to retire, and God says to him, you fool, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Now let me say this, I don't believe that today's scriptures are a call for everyone to sell everything they have and and become an ascetic. And in some ways, I don't even think this is only about money and wealth. It is about that, but I think there's a lot more going on. I think it's a challenge and a pretty blunt one at that about where our true treasure really lies. Jesus is asking us to consider what it is that really matters in life, and not just in this life, but for all eternity. What led Jesus to tell this story of the rich fool was a question from someone in the crowds. It wasn't so much a a question as it was a demand. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. Just think about that for a moment. There was this man standing in front of Jesus, the Son of God, he could have asked him about anything, anything at all. And all he's bothered about is his share of the family inheritance. He didn't seem to be interested in what Jesus was teaching. And like so many others then and now, that man who asked the question treasured earthly things more than anything else. And Jesus responded to him, not by doing as he'd been asked, but rather by giving a warning. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then Jesus told the story. But did you notice in that parable as it was being read by Mark, um, how many times I or my was used? It was 11 times in three sentences. I think it's pretty emphatic. I don't think Jesus is warning against wealth per se, but against selfishness and greed. You see, these things are so dangerous, very, very dangerous. They cost people their lives every day. Billionaire oil mogul John D. Rockefeller once reportedly replied to the question, how much money is enough? Just a little bit more. I wonder, how much wealth is too much wealth? I think the answer is when greed sets in. But you know, it's not just wealth that the writer of our passage from Ecclesiastes suggests is meaningless. He lists all kinds of things. Pleasure, laughter, great projects, building houses, planting vineyards, all of it achieving nothing. What are we to make of this? What does this have to say to us as we are working with architects about how to repair and improve and expand our facilities and provide funding for more mission? Is our More Than Stones initiative just a chasing after the wind? And what of our studying and our learning, our vocations, our families? Will we find true meaning, happiness, and fulfillment? And of course, today, we reel once again at the senseless, meaningless, callous mass murder in El Paso, 
yesterday and overnight again in Dayton, Ohio. Some are calling for greater gun control. Others that we are better prepared to defend ourselves. Complete opposites. And I find myself, perhaps like some of you, tempted to despair. Tempted to be rather cynical. Because there'll be more talking, there'll be more demands, more protests, and frankly, I don't think anything's going to change. We who are not bereaved or maimed or in the immediate vicinity will go about our business and these wicked acts of senseless violence will join the statistics until the next mass shooting. Maybe this week. So where is the hope? Where is the meaning? What on earth are we to think or say or do? Well, this morning I want to say this, without any sense of triumphalism or bravado, without wanting to offer any black or white answers, simply this, that we as followers of Jesus are not without hope. And no matter how meaningless or senseless or empty or bleak things may be in our world and in our nation, maybe in some of our very own homes, in our hunger and thirst for meaning, our scriptures this morning give us a timely and relevant portrait. The key to our understand, understanding the point that the, the writer of Ecclesiastes is making, I believe, it lies in three little words that keep recurring all the way through this book. Under the sun. These words appear just twice in our passage, but 29 times in the book as a whole. I think the most tragic thing for those who live their lives as if the material world, that is, that which we find under the sun that shines, if that is all that there is, all that is real, if, if that's true, then there is no way of making sense of so much that we encounter and experience. Now, people, of course, will try and make sense out of life and the, the chance things that happen, including the pain and the suffering and even death itself. But the truth is, if there is no point of reference beyond ourselves and our own existence, then we are in deep trouble. You can't just wish meaninglessness away. Further on in Ecclesiastes, the writer explains that though all may be vanity and meaningless under the sun, there is an eternity which has meaning, with God at the beginning and at the end. And the wisdom writer ends this piece of writing with an exhortation to fear God and keep his commandments. It is only as we look beyond the finite to the infinite that we can find meaning and purpose in our lives. Even when we don't see clearly, even when we don't fully understand, even when we don't have all the answers. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Colossae, urged them to seek the things that are above, 
At the start of the chapter where our passage came from today, he writes this. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Or we could say things that are under the sun. Sometimes you hear it said that that person is so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly use. But I think the challenge here today might be the other way around. Don't be so earthly-minded that you're of no heavenly use. And being heavenly-minded is all about being like Christ, who was always doing his Father's business. St. Paul sets out clear and uncompromising standards for how we're to live our lives as Christian people. And the contrast is between living our lives only under the sun, S-U-N, the sun that shines, on the one hand, and living our lives under the sun, S-O-N. If Christ is to be our life, if we are to set our minds on things that are above, then that also translates into action. And that action doesn't have to be to sell everything we have or to give everything to the poor, but it does call for something radical. In our epistle reading today, St. Paul urges us to put to death whatever in you that is earthly, whatever in you that is under the sun, fornication, impurity, passion, evil desire and greed. Get rid of those things. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive language. Now, of course, that's easy to say, but how do we do that? You know, Christian conduct arises not essentially out of our own efforts to be good, thank God, but rather through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and through our belonging, through our belonging to one another, through us being the people of God. And so part of our task in the midst of things that are difficult is to help one another to live and to love for Christ. Listen again to what Paul says, beginning at verse 12, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bear with one another. That's not easy to do sometimes, is it? Bear with one another. Forgive each other. I mean, that implies that there's stuff going on that needs to be forgiven. Things that have been done that are wrong or where people have taken advantage or haven't noticed or whatever. But just, we're to forgive each other just as the Lord has forgiven us. Above all, he says, clothe yourselves with love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And so it is as we live lives like that, by God's grace, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we become rich, rich toward God. And it's that kind of wealth, those kinds of riches, that our world and every one of us here so desperately needs. And that's, I believe, what can bring meaning in the face of meaninglessness and hope in the face of despair. So to the lonely and the lost, to the empty rich, 
to all those who struggle with life as being a cruel case of vanity, vanity, all is vanity. We, the church, ordinary, less than perfect, far less than perfect though we are, have something real, something powerful to offer. Last year, a Chinese woman um, who'd been coming a little and was studying in the city made an appointment to come and see me. She'd been attending uh, our ESL classes and one of our Bible study groups um, that we have for internationals. She was a very bright person. She was a PhD uh, medical doctor. She was about to return to China, but she had a burning question that she said she wanted to ask me. She said this, what is the meaning of life? Great question. Now, the answer to that profound question is ultimately not found in philosophy or religion, in study or good works. No, it is found in a person. And I had the joy and privilege of sharing with her about life under the sun, S-O-N, about Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is nothing less than the way to find true meaning in life. Indeed, he is the way, the truth, and the life. Interestingly, after the first service uh, this morning, uh, Marilyn came up to me and said, and I didn't know this, she had emailed this woman uh, after she'd got back to China and said, how's everything going? And she responded, she said, I found the meaning of life. Our confidence lies not in the transient things of life, not in our work or insurance policies, not in our health or our achievements, not in our politics or policies, but in Jesus. And the life that Paul describes needs to be seen and experienced now in our lives. The evil practices which he spoke of are to be put to death. Because if they're, not, if they're not dealt with, if they're not faced into, then like an infected wound, they will spread and affect the whole person. Paul doesn't mince his words when he speaks of the consequences of not dealing with these things that come between us and God. Whether it's your money, whether it's your uh, achievements, whatever it is. He says the wrath of God is coming on those who are disobedient. This is, you know, this is not because God is somehow capricious. It just doesn't like certain people or, or behaviors, so he kind of arbitrarily decides to punish it. Rather, the wrath of God is the necessary reaction of true holiness and justice and goodness to wickedness, exploitation, and evil of every kind. And the wrath actually begins to take effect in the degrading effects of sin itself. If unchecked and unforgiven, sin always leads to death and to judgment. But even before the final judgment, before that, we see so evident the horrors of sin in hell on earth. And those who continually choose to go their own way rather than God's way and practice these things that Paul warns against begin, in a sense, to lose their God-given humanity. They demonstrate the very opposite of the resurrection and the life as they begin to die even while still alive. But 
we can begin to experience this new life when, in Paul's words, we clothe ourselves with the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of its creator. And so it is as we draw closer to God, as we put to death those things that come between us and God, that the image of God in which we are all uniquely created can be restored. And so we begin to see through the darkness and the mess and the meaninglessness and have hope. Our mission, our, our reaching out to others in their meaningless, whether sitting next to you today or where you work or where you live, has to start with us as each one of us demonstrates the truth of what we say we believe as we show others what it looks like to love and to forgive. I wonder how are we being a model for others to see of true community, a community marked by humility, genuineness, meaning, purpose. You know, the picture that Paul paints in verses 12 through 17, I, I think it's a very beautiful, appealing, and a deeply challenging picture of community, a community that's marked by compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience, a community where those members of it bear with one another and forgive one another. And above all, writes St. Paul, clothe yourself with love. Life lived under the sun is all vanity. But if we set our minds on things that are above, if we will let Christ be our life, then we can be rich toward God. Oh, that the word of Christ may dwell in us richly, that we would teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in our hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual psalm, um, songs to God. And that whatever we do, in word or deed, that we would do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Brothers and sisters, let us not store up treasure for ourselves. Let us instead be rich before God. Heed the words of Jesus. Take care. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. I wonder, what will Jesus say to you at the end of your life? What will he say to you today? You fool? Or well done, good and faithful servant? Amen.